Right. Hi, everyone. I'm Asha Murthy, the CEO of the Australian Council for Educational Leaders. And we are at our national conference in Melbourne. Um, and along the sidelines of that conference, I'm having conversations with some of our keynote speakers and our new voice scholars. And today, uh, we have the pleasure of speaking to David and Alice Kolb. Hi, David. Hi, Hi Alice. Hello. Very nice to have you here in Australia and at our conference. So I'm going to start off by asking you a, a couple of questions, and then we can just roll with it and, and have a conversation. So we, the words experiential learning, now you own those words. It's, it's something that I think people don't even realize they're doing, and they're doing experiential learning. And not always they're probably thinking of you, but you actually own those words. So what is it you think has been so enduring about the concept of experiential learning? Well, I think that uh, experiential learning is not something that I invented and I just didn't coin those words, but actually I discovered them in the work of what we call the foundational scholars of experiential learning. Uh, people like Mary Parker Flett, William James, John Dewey, Jean Piaget, and, and so on. And so what we have done is basically mined their work uh, for ideas about learning, and particularly for ideas about learning from experience, because all of these scholars had one central theme in their work, which is how is it that experience shapes learning? And they saw learning as being the central I saw experience as being the central aspect of learning. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we're dealing with scholars who, you know, began William James and Mary Parker Follett at the end of the last century, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, makes it automatically enduring. Yeah, absolutely. Alice, do you want to add to that? What, what, what do you think? Well, I think so another enduring. aspect that we have to emphasize is about the practice. So I think our research was always informed by how it's been used in the research community. And we, in, in turn, were benefited by the users <coughs> who use the idea of experiential learning in their practice, and also by researchers who use the idea and advance the knowledge by share their passion and dedication to experiential learning. So I think it is a collaboration among practitioners and researchers and, you know, theorists like us. But in no way experiential learning could have been created uh, by ourselves alone. It's always, knowledge creation for us always has been a collaborative endeavor. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, I think. And that's probably one of the reasons it is enduring because it is involving not just the researcher, but the subjects and the practice. Yes, I would say that at no, more than enduring, it's actually developing. Mm. And the way in which it's developing is that just what Alice is saying, that uh, it's more and more becoming integrated in practice in education. Mm. And this, I think, at the moment is kind of the cutting edge of our work where we see universities and school systems mandating that mm -hmm. we're going to do experiential learning 
and searching for, well, what does that mean mm. in our system and how do we do that? And so that's the challenge that we have at the moment is to help in that process in mm. any way we can. That's a, that's, a, that's a great point. And it comes to you, you, you talked about it in your speech about when you first talked about the experiential learning cycle and the, the learning styles. And it's now evolved. Uh, from four to now nine. Could you talk about that and what has been that evolution and what's driven that? The evolution of learning styles yes. from four to nine? Yeah. Well, I think that the main thing in that particular case is that as we looked at the learning style measure, we discovered uh, as a result of having thousands of people take the learning style inventory, there were people who said, well, none of those four styles are what I am, you know. Mm, mm. And when we looked at their chart, what it showed was they scored right in the middle in the inventory, that they weren't clearly one way or another. And so we first identified this style, which we called balancing, of people who experienced, reflected, thought, and acted equally in all four modes. Uh, and then we also saw that there were people who... Uh, were between the accommodating, initiating style and the diverging, imagining style. They were right on the line between those. And so we recognized an experiencing style there. And so it was just basically, if you'd use the TV pixel image, we just went from a four-pixel resolution to a nine-pixel right. resolution. In so terms it, it of just got more nuanced. As more, you, nuanced more nuanced, yes. Yeah. And, and that happened over a period of time, correct? It did. Yeah. It did. And we were aided in that by the work of David Hunt at the University of Toronto, a mm -hmm. wonderful man who wrote a book called Beginning with Ourselves. Right. And his theory... For, he worked. He's an educational psychologist, and his work was with teachers. And his whole idea was that teacher, teachers should begin with their own expertise and practice, mm. and and add on to it the knowledge of evidence, as we see in, mm. in the theme of the conference. So, Alice, something that came up again as a, as a question earlier was around you know learning styles, and there are hundreds of. Um, different um, programs and, and uh, you know things that people have come up with, but um, you talked about how what you do, it's not trait-like, mm -hmm. it's not a personality, it's not a personality test. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Because I think there is a bit of, you know, there's a lot of clutter in that environment because there are so many tools out there, right. um, not just in learning styles, but in everything. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult for people to sift through sometimes. So that point that you made would be really good if you could expand on that uh, about what is it that, what is this, what are your learning styles and how they differ from what else is out there? I think the most important distinction that uh, we make is that uh, learning style inventory, our learning style inventory is number one, based on the theory of learning. Uh, it in includes uh, theory of personality and so forth, but this is not a personality test, and also it's not a cognitive test. It is about how you learn. And it's like Dave was talking about, this foundational father, it's in fact, it, 
and in the underlying uh, theory is that we all learn in different ways, but there is a theoretical foundation about learning that comes out, and that's the most important distinction. Mm. And also, second point is that we approach learning, and we try to portray that in learning study inventories, that learning is a very dynamic process. So if you consider a learner and come to you and identify this person with somebody who has a trait of um, imagining style or experiencing style, you're actually damaging the learner Mm. because Mm. you are not acknowledging the fact that this person, although in some point in life or in a situation they may exhibit the learning style of an imagining and so forth, but this person is changing and evolving all the time. And also, it's very misleading to think that this person exhibits only one style in one Mm. setting. Mm. It's highly context-driven. So, and that's where we make a link between learning style and experiential learning cycle. Mm. Mm. Because cycle is a cycle, but it's also in a spiral. Yeah. So it's always, always evolving. Mm. And at one point in time, you may be in one style, but you are not the same person in same, each moment, you mm. know. So that's the distinction between style, because style for us is more like a state, evolving state. And the learner may be changing right in front of uh, your mm. eyes, but also change always happening in the learner's mind. Yeah. And as an educator, we have to acknowledge that. And that's a, that's a great point. It's a great segue to our next question, which is really about the world today. And we talk about adaptiveness. And uh, we are in you know, a world that is just changing so rapidly. Uh, not only is change very fast, it's very visible. Uh, which makes it even harder to deal with because it's not as if things are happening and you don't know about them. You know about it all the time because it's on your device, it's on a tweet, it's on a podcast. So uh, change is rapid and it's very visible. So in a world like that, how do you think people are now experiencing, so the the word experience, and also how do you think they learn um, in the current environment we've got with you know, all the factors that we know about, you know, media, the 24-hour cycle, um, just social media, all of these things that have driven that. So in this world that we live in, how do you think people are experiencing things and, and how do you think they are learning? Well, I think this question brings to me probably in a different, a little bit of a different uh, approach is that John Dewey, uh, he wrote a book called Artisan Experience. Mm. And in that book, he has one very short essay called Having an Experience. And uh, in our talk today, David was talking about experiencing. So another way to look at it is that in order for you to learn, you have to own a particular experience. So that's what he meant by having an experience. Mm. And I'm not quite sure if um, in the current times where there's so much information, so much going on, if we actually, we're not passing by the experience but not mm-hmm. actually having it. And the reason why I say that, because I think what Dewey was saying, unless you own a particular experience, you're not experiencing. So as an educator, um, I oft, often grapple with that idea of, so how can I make a student experience more? Mm. And then there's a challenge of time. Because experiencing or owning an experience 
takes time. And in order for you to become a thoughtful learner, you need time. And the time is becoming more and more, you know, scarce commodity. So there is a, you know, dichotomy here because you have to deal with a lot of information. But in order to really evaluate an information or an experience and then finally own in it, mm. and therefore you're making conscious decision or uh, formulating an opinion based mm. on that having, I don't think it's happening. It's, yeah. it's too quick, no, you know. Uh, uh, abs- so absolutely. in that environment, I think our role as an educator is, is even more important to start creating spaces, learning spaces, where those having an experience and having learners own their particular experience become even more crucial mm-hmm. to be able to engage in a very complex dialogue and conversation these days. Now, that's, that's a great point. Dave, do you want to add to that? Well, uh, you, you, this is a huge topic, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, the thing that strikes me is there are so many, when we say people today, there are so many different groups that we need to be aware of. You know, yeah. we, uh, for Alice and I, for example, have talked a lot about millennials. Mm. And do millennials learn differently mm. uh, because of their kind of having been born with uh, the uh, cell phone in yeah. their hand almost. And uh, so that's one kind of group that has, I think, a particular approach that's different maybe from the rest of the population. And then the other uh, group that is so prevalent in the U.S. today and is having such as uh, what we would call the Trump supporters mm-hmm. or the people from rural areas mm-hmm. uh, who are outside of, you know, urban-rural, mm-hmm. I see is a huge, huge difference in terms of how people learn and communicate mm-hmm. and relate and uh so the immediate uh, f- kind of sensual environment of the rural mm-hmm. environment where you are, the people you know, you know in the flesh, so yeah. to speak, and uh, the, as opposed to life in the city, which people know each other on Facebook and social mm-hmm. media and so on, these, I think, have profound uh, implications mm-hmm. on what it is that people are learning or yeah. not learning. Yeah. And that's unfortunately forming their beliefs mm. in a way which creates a huge divide, I think. I, I, absolutely. I think the point you were making earlier about experience and owning the experience, and it is quite interesting when you talk to millennials and uh, you know, even the next generation coming, and they value experience more than they value actually physical assets. Uh, you find that you know, the amount of people traveling now, going to concerts or experiencing sport. They spend a lot on those things compared to owning things, owning a house, owning. And that's quite interesting. So they value experience almost on parallel with a physical object. Mm -hmm. So there is that bit. So that is a trend because, um, and you see that quite a lot of millennials, you know, they would rather spend $10,000 on a holiday than buy a car sometimes because Mm -hmm. it's, the experience they put value on. But then there's this other side which you're talking about, which is this constant experiencing mm-hmm. um, means that they're not actually owning it and they don't have the time to... Oh. So they've almost moved on to the next experience. Right. Um, so what does it then have as an impact on 
learning in a classroom. So, you know, you talk about learning spaces. So how can, if you're a teacher today in a classroom, or in a university for that matter, how do you get people to do that, given that this is, what, this is the world they're in? They're not in a stable, slow environment. They are in a fairly chaotic environment, driven more by social media and all of those things. So what is, what is advice that you would give a classroom teacher or a university teacher at the moment to say, how can they make their students own their experiences? Well, you know, maybe I'm betraying that, the fact that I'm old-fashioned, but I, I think as an educator, I do believe that slowing down and reflecting is an essential part of developing the capacity for critical thinking and moral judgment and, you know, all of these character attributes which we value in our society. And uh, so... In some ways, we need to have the students turn off their cell phones when they come to class and have them have create an environment where that kind of reflection can happen, first of all, before they can value it. Uh, and uh, so that's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Alice? Well, it's interesting because when um, we were involved in um, educational reform at Case, we decided to teach freshman undergraduate students. And we, up, up until then, we always taught graduate students. You know? mm. so, and we were taught about this. This is a new generation, millennials. They don't pay attention. They're always on the smartphone or on the phone and so forth. And when we started teaching, although some of the characteristics were there, mm. um, millennials, for example, is not a monolithic you know, group. No. And in fact, uh, none of those things that we're told by you know, so, uh, new gen millennial trainers, I don't think that was true. Some mm. somewhere. Mm. So, and what I think we had experience with these students is a personal connection, you know, and right. and uh, you have to convey to them in a very authentic way that you're curious about them, mm -hmm. what they care about, yeah, and that they are learners. Mm. So, in that realm, I think they will slow down, and they will engage with you, as far as you are engaged with them. Mm. And as far as you are curious about them as learners. So, but I think what Dave was talking about is slowing down. It is possible and it is crucial. Mm. But I think the most important thing is paying attention to them. Yeah, the human connection Human is connection critical. is important. Uh, and I think as educators, we get so caught up in all of our technologies and programs mm. and everything, we, we, we kind of lose sight of the fact that this is actually, you know, in local parentis, we yeah. used to say in the colleges, that yeah. this is actually a very important personal kind of relationship, and that breaks through a lot. With, with millennials, in the, in the classes that Alice was talking about, we were so surprised that they took to the 
experiential learning approach with great gusto. Mm. And in fact, they said that, oh, yeah, we had this kind of thing in high school. And uh, they were, we challenged them to mm. invent their own mm. exercises and teaching experiences. And they were incredibly inventive. Mm. Maybe it's just searching for experiences or something. Yeah. Yeah. But they, so that that's, was something we were quite surprised by, that uh, they yeah, were teaching I, us experiential Absolutely. Learning. And the point you were making earlier, sometimes the rhetoric is too loud on, yeah. on these things. And it's overstated, you know, millennials you know, don't right. have attention or they, they need too much, di- lots of distractions. Or, it's not necessarily true. I mean, there's probably some overlay about that right. because of the, the, the constant barrage of media in front of them, etc. Yes. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't hold uh, attention. So changing tack a little bit and going to leadership, which is really our area you know mm-hmm. we look at educational leadership so the lens at which we look at education is through through leadership so if you're looking at leaders in a classroom or a system or a school so what would be advice that you would give them what are a couple of pointers if you had to give them a couple of things that you want them to focus on what would they what would they be authenticity and presence mm-hmm being present, being in contact with the with the other, the, the mm-hmm. employee or the uh, student or, or whatever. Yeah. I think that uh, people recognize authenticity mm-hmm. when they see it. And it, is a, it has a tremendous calming effect on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and leaders... Uh, you know, we talk about visionary leaders and, and so on, and that's all very important. But I think that leaders who are able to communicate mm. this authenticity mm. and presence with the people they work with are able to, number one, hear what people have to say, because people will want to speak to someone who's being authentic, mm. and also able to adapt to the changes that these people who are speaking to them bring to them to address. Mm. Oh, that's great. Um, Alice, what, what would you think are some I of the attributes? I think it's critical that the leaders are learners. Mm-hmm. And they don't quit learning. And not only about um, the industry, the sector, or you know the environment that they are operating, but somebody who can learn about the people they're working with. And I think the critical point of leadership um, is that your ability to have a dialogue uh, together, you know, uh, not from the top down. And like David was saying, is being authentic that way. But you have to have, I think, this innate or you have to develop a curiosity toward people. And if you don't have that, you have to have this insatiable curiosity about people because if you demonstrate that curiosity, paying attention to them, I think people will develop. Mm. Now, that, that's, that's wonderful because I think we've got some, some really common themes about what you're talking about and what we're actually going to be talking about at this conference is, you know, when you look at leadership, being authentic, being present... Um, and presence has two connotations. There's being present, but also having a presence. Yes. Uh, 
it's the way you're reaching out. But you're talking about leaders as learners. Uh, you know, you never stop learning. And I think that's a great lesson. And then the interest in the other, the curiosity. Um, and those are qualities that are very enduring. I mean, they have been, uh, I, I guess, every culture over time has valued those. And that hasn't changed. So um, it's wonderful to have you both here in Australia. Uh, we've enjoyed your keynote this morning. I've enjoyed talking to you now. And uh, I know we're going to be working with you further. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Ari. And, thank you. Uh, thank yeah, you have a wonderful a visit down under and hope you come back again, not this time, not after 40 years. <laughs> well, I guarantee it won't be after 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be after 40 years, but suddenly also um, come back so your money still works. <laughs>